Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon, and I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Missiles strike Lviv as Ukrainian forces refuse to surrender in Mariupol. A barrage of missiles that hit Lviv today killed at least seven and injured 11, including a child, breaking a relative calm in the western city that has been largely unscathed by Russian strikes as Ukrainian forces clung on in the battered southern port city of Mariupol. What are we... Where are we in this process? For insight, let's turn to our first guest. He's a international relations and security analyst based in Moscow, Mark Schloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back. Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the Critical Hour. So the Washington Post reports news that the deadly strikes occurred near the city's train depot, the first stop for many families fleeing violence was interpreted as a clear message that nowhere in Ukraine is safe from Russian attack. Mark, this assessment makes it appear to me as though this is a very, that the Russians are engaged in a very random process instead of a targeted process that uh, we've been discussing over the past few weeks. And it also makes it appear to me that civilian areas are being targeted where we've been discussing that that isn't in, in all at all the case. Yeah, I mean, this is, of course, you know, the way they will try to spin um, these strikes. Uh, but the reality is uh, more to the fact that no Western shipments of weapons across the border, uh, trains being the preferred route uh, from the West to Ukraine, is safe. <laughs> from Russian uh, strikes. Um, and that is exactly what Russia targeted, uh, Western weapons uh, from NATO countries crossing the border into Ukraine. The Russian uh, government uh, has already established uh, and, and made quite clear that they would consider any supplies of lethal arms uh, to the Kiev regime, which has been killing its own people for the last eight years, um, as a legitimate target, and it has targeted them, and it has taken more Western arms out before they could ever be put into Azov's, the right sectors, or any of the other Kiev regime. Let, let, let me just quickly add that this is a, an, an evidence of lies by uh, commission in that there are important little elements of the story that don't get reported here so that people here wind up thinking, oh, they're just indiscriminately targeting apartment buildings and shooting at trains. And But no, there's a method to the madness. There's a military objective and a threat that they are trying to vanquish. If I may add, there's a subtle angle to the propaganda, too near the train station. In other words, you know, just like when we told you that they hit a train station, there's a train station and lots of people go to the train station and lots of weapons coming into the train station too, but they kind of left that little part out with their subtle propagandist uh, implications, Mark. 
Yeah, that you 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 definitely picked up on on their framing terminology near the city's landmark train at depot. The first stop for many families flee, fleeing violence is at this location near the train depot. No, of course not. Uh, it's the train depot, and they did not even strike the train depot. Although it must be said, if the trains were um, uh, you know delivering weapons, I would consider that illegal targets myself. But they are even refraining from that. Um, and they uh, make comments uh, towards it destroying the civilian infrastructure uh, without ever saying exactly what infrastructure that is, being civilian warehouses housing NATO weapons. Uh, two other things about this story. One, Lviv regional officials told The Washington Post, in other words— this is whatever we're told by the people in Ukraine. We write it down as though it's the gospel. When they tell us, hey, the Russians did X, we don't say, well, gee, is there anything to prove that? We just put it out in the Washington Post because it came from Ukrainian officials. The other part is that they mentioned Ukrainian forces clung on in the battered southern port city of Mariupol. Well, at least they're finally admitting that the Ukrainians aren't just completely defeating the beleaguered Russian forces as they, you know, as they're mercilessly slaughtered by the gallant Ukrainians. So, but what they don't say, and this is to me the worst part of the whole Mariupol and all of this stuff. Clearly, these forces are surrounded without a prayer, without a hope. The thing to, let's face it, they are young human beings. The, no, regardless of what their fate is ultimately, the thing to do is to say, these people are sounded, surrounded without a prayer. They can't win. Why just waste their lives? Throw their arms up. More Russians don't have to die. More Ukrainians don't have to die. Throw their weapons down. You're surrounded. Drop your weapons. Come out. And whatever, wherever you go from there, you go from there. But they imply that there's some kind of a valiant spirit to dying for the neocons in Washington, D.C. I'll throw that last part in there. Mark. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, first of all, uh, the Kiev regime has has made clear, uh, you know, through such acts as, as a releasing of violent prisoners onto the streets, as long as they'll promise to fight Russians, um, you know, handing out civilians uh, weapons and instructing them how to make Molotov cocktails, et cetera, et cetera. You conscripting 16 and 17 year olds uh, uh, into uh, every 16 and 17 year old male in the country, uh, supposedly uh, into the uh, armed forces uh, makes clear that it will toss any and everyone it can as long as possible between uh, the Russian intervention forces uh, and the regime uh, in order to extend its life and bleed Russia. But I think there's there's also an ulterior uh, motive here because uh, who is holding out in this uh, Azov stall uh, steel factory? And it has to be mentioned, there are extensive underground tunnels and uh, uh, World War, uh, you know, uh, uh, bunkers uh, built to survive World War III down there. These are nuclear-proof bunkers. Um, they have several levels. Uh, they, they might be well supplied if if they they were maintained. But regardless, uh, they would be they would be extremely difficult to dig out of there. Uh, it would it would it's basically a city in a city under a city. Um, and um, but this is 
Azov, the state-armed and funded neo-Nazi battalion, and some three to four hundred foreign mercenaries. Uh, one, these three to four hundred mercenaries aren't really good for anything in military terms except dying uh, to 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 make head, newspaper headlines. They are they are cannon fodder, right, to generate sympathy. Uh, Azov is a double-edged sword. Uh, by all accounts, according to multiple Western media sources that I have uh, read, including uh, the Washington Post, New York Times, they have called Azov perhaps uh, Ukraine's uh, most uh, powerful, most uh, capable uh, military force. Well, first of all, if a, a literal neo-Nazi death squad is is your most capable force, then that calls a lot of things into question, like what exactly is the Ukraine that they are fighting for? Uh, but they have uh, the double-edged sword of that is they present a political threat to Zelensky, and they have made those threats, uh, the right-wing forces, including Azov, many times in the past, including when he first took office, and they refused to fulfill his to follow his orders face to face on the contact line in Donbass. Um, uh, to withdraw heavy weapons to fulfill the Minsk Accords. And he basically just gave in after that. If they were to die there, presumably Zelensky might actually want to make some political settlement and accede to some of Russia's demands to end the intervention at some time in the future. Azov would be a big problem because they would never accept any terms uh, seen as favorable to Russia, they would view it as a capitulation. If they both bleed Russia, draw out time, make a symbolic last stand making martyrs out of themselves in Mariupol, and then are removed from the table where they might complicate things for him politically down the line, everyone's a winner, right? How prevalent is – do you have any any idea of how prevalent that mindset, that Azov right sector mindset is throughout the populace? So if you eliminate the soldiers in uniform, does the mindset die or are there uh, civilians who – subscribe to this ultra-nationalist, um, anti-Semitic, anti-ethnic Russian racist mindset? Are they like, are they like the Klan in that, in that regard? Definitely there is a limited supply of them. All Ukrainians are not Nazis as the attempt to caricatures Russia pointing out the dangerous presence of these in the military and, and, and in the, the political sphere is. They do their own discrete political parties. There are several of them have very little support, right? We're, we're talking fractions of percentage points. However, there are a large number of politicians that share many of their beliefs, although maybe not to quite their degree of violent fanaticism in the mainstream political parties. I'll just draw attention just to name one. Um, well, the, the leader of the right sector is a RADA deputy. And um, the number two on Poroshenko's party list of European Solidarity Party is Andrei Perubi. 
the arch neo-Nazi uh, him, himself who was feted by the West. So they do exist. And the, the degree of um, the percentage of the population that does subscribe to at least some of their beliefs, uh, primarily being a, a very virulently anti-ethnic Russian, anti-Sovak East Ukrainian um, uh, anti-leftist idea is more prevalent in West Ukraine. Right. That's is where the ideology, the worship of, of Stefan Bandera, the World War II era Nazi collaborator and Holocaust perpetrator comes from. Uh, but all been and told, the number of these violent um, uh, far right forces in the country, uh, you know, the, the true violent fanatics, um, I have seen numbers spread throughout the discrete battalions, the SBU, the police, the military, as perhaps a hundred thousand or so. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the latest video of poor old Joe Biden. I can't get it out. Uh, shaking hands yeah. with a ghost. Yeah, trying to shake uh, hands with the ghost of corn pop and uh, wandering aimlessly. No, 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 wandering. That, that, that was that was the ghosts of the martyred sailors of Snake Island. Oh, ah. there we go, or the ghost of Kiev, whoever. But he's doing some ghostly Ghost handshaking AMT. and wandering aimlessly about the stage at North Carolina A and T. But uh, uh, Vladimir Zelensky uh, 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 obviously is calling on him to visit uh, Ukraine, and from the looks of his poll numbers, I think there's a whole lot of people in the Democratic Party <laughs> that'd like to see him go to. But I don't think he's going. Your thoughts on it, Mark Lavoda? Yeah, um, I, I do not think he is going either. First of all, I'm pretty sure that uh, entering a country at a war dominated by um, uh, one of the uh, you know U.S.'s most adversarial uh, states, uh, uh, you know, uh, in, engage in a conflict is a security threat that I do not think that they would or should allow the U.S. president, no matter the propaganda value of 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 such a visit. Uh, uh, secondly. If Joe Biden was to go there in a way that is uh, a degree, a hand, hands, a head and shoulder above other European leaders that w would go there, uh, Joe Biden would then be essentially staking his the, his reputation and the reputation of the United States on that country and keeping that regime alive and afloat, which would be very. Uh, disastrous if down the road he was then forced to, you know, give it up or it, it was seen as as falling to Russian forces. So I don't think, you know, even from that propaganda value, they're quite ready to go out onto that ledge. But really quickly, if he were truly a statesman, and I know I'm stretching, I'm, I'm stretching a lot here, but if he were truly a statesman, and were to go, maybe not necessarily to Ukraine, but to some close neutral space and say, uh, President Putin, why don't you meet me here? Zelensky, why don't you meet me here? Let's get this thing settled. Then that's what a statesman would do. 30 seconds. Yeah, um, I, I think that um, I, he understands, first of all, I think the U.S. Look to continue to play right. Russia as long as possible. And uh, second of all, um, if uh, the Russian president simply refused him, then 
um, that would uh, be rather embarrassing. Yeah, I guess you're right. Since the Saudis won't take his phone calls, maybe President Putin won't take his phone calls <laughs> either. <laughs> Mark Sloboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. Uh, well, with, with him shaking hands with ghosts, maybe he's just dialing the wrong number. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> he's calling some payphone. I'm pretty sure the, the comedian Zelensky would be able to mime a routine of shaking. <laughs> Uh, Joe Biden's hand uh, virtually uh, fairly well. Mark Sloboda, really appreciate it. Look forward to having you back. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Global Times has a piece, Voldemort of Global Order. America is the dark lord set on destroying international order. Just in one year, our sanctions are likely to wipe out the last 15 years of Russia's economic gains and make Russia an outcast on the international stage. These remarks by U.S. President Biden after the outbreak of the Russian military, uh, the Russian-Ukrainian military conflict are frightening. What are we to make of this? Well, let's turn to our next guest. He's a journalist, social activist, international business consultant and chemical engineer, George Koo. As always, George, welcome back. Thank you, gentlemen. Good to be back. So thank you, George. So the piece continues fanning the flames to create turmoil using economic and financial hegemony to sanction opponents and forming cliques to create political isolation. The U.S. is using its hegemony to undermine the international order. Your thoughts, George Koo. Well, you know, you, at the beginning, you mentioned how Biden thought that this is going to wipe out 15 years of um, Russia's economic gain. That is probably an oversimplification and um, and and, and hubris uh, on Biden's part. But destroying the international order is something that he has unilaterally done and done very effectively. And I think that uh, the price to be paid, we're just beginning to feel the pain. And, and we, meaning the whole world, um, but especially Europe, and I think the U.S. will be feeling it uh, in, in the days and the weeks and the months to come. And I don't know, you know, after the wreckage, how we're ever going to restore the so-called international order in terms of... Um, uh, in terms of bringing back the trust that the United States used to enjoy before before this debacle. You know, I, I don't think it's going to happen. And I think, oddly enough, there not oddly enough, that there are a lot of people in the world, you know, if you look at Venezuela and, I mean, country after country that are suffering at the hands of the U.S. Um, a, a US sanctions, there are a lot of countries around the world who are sitting quietly and trying to abstain and not because they're still afraid of the United States power, which still has plenty of power, but are rooting for it, are clapping on the side of the line saying, oh, please, can some 
somebody get these people off of our back? I truly believe that. Or can somebody get these people off of our backs? We can't jump up and shout and celebrate just yet because they still have power. But I believe there are a lot of places around the world where people are hoping that the United States will fall off of its perch um, so that they can have an opportunity not to have their resources plundered and their lives made miserable. Yeah. Well, I think it's 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 probably not going to be uh, something that will happen overnight, you know, as as dramatically as somebody falling off the perch. But it seems like it's going to be a gradual erosion until one day all of a sudden everybody wakes up and realizes, hey, they are no longer on the perch. Uh, guess what? And I, I think the reason it's going to be gradual is because it, it, the the – the persuasion and influence of Washington is is patently and obviously weakening, and more and more countries are beginning to realize that they're going to have to look out after their own self-interest and not just blindly follow whatever uh, Washington says. And, and you can see that by the the petrol yuan, if you will, the Saudi has en- uh, entered with China. The ability for um, Russia to recover from the sanctions and start to bring the ruble up as a international currency that other countries will want to own because they want to continue to buy oil and gas and other uh, products from from Russia. Uh, and and same goes with the influence that China has. China has swap agreements with many of the countries so that they can not have to deal with a dollar. And I think we will, it's safe to say that we will figure out, uh, we will see how China will figure out to hold less and less of the U.S. dollar reserve and and let the U.S. figure out where they're going to be able to sell their treasury bills other than to their own citizens. These things are going to be um, evolutionary, um, and uh, uh, and it will show up by the the inflation that we're going to see, and we are already seeing that in this country, and and that's just going to get worse. I I think Biden's uh, releasing a million barrels of oil from the reserve to keep the oil price down is really a band-aid approach, and and, and he's promising to do that for six months. Well, what do you do for an encore after six months is over? Somewhere down the line, you're going to have to buy back the oil that you just released, and that's going to bring a second cycle of uh, inflation and oil prices. There's, there's There's no never... It's a never ending problem. There's no permanent solution except for one. And that's one that Biden and Washington won't do, which is to peace, you know, promote world peace rather than world conflict. But that's, that, doesn't, that doesn't seem to be in our DNA. And that's a point brought up in this piece. After the Russia-Ukraine conflict broke out, the U.S. did not persuade Moscow and Kiev to negotiate and promote peace but instead continued to provide military assistance to Ukraine in an attempt to prolong the conflict and to bring down Russia. And, you know, uh, Garland made a point in an earlier segment about empires uh, crumbling from within. They implode. We've been talking about this 
from the international context, but from the domestic context, one of the things that will facilitate the decline of the empire is the internal unrest based upon inflation, based upon uh, the Democrats in this particular instance being unable to deliver on the on the social promises that they've made while $800 billion uh, still goes into, uh, or it was a million, still goes into the, um, the war budget. But we still can't yeah. afford uh, to pay teachers' salaries a living wage. Yeah, and we can't, we can't repair a highway and keep the bridges from falling down. Exactly. All the other problems that we have in this country, it seems like our only approach, our only solution by the Biden administration is to double down and create more conflict and turmoil outside the U.S. and hoping that that will draw the attention of the American voters from the real problems that we have in this country. And I seriously don't think that's going to work, and we'll find out in the midterm election and then, and then after that in the 2024. We, there's, there isn't any question in my mind that the internal decay of this country is a serious, serious problem, and nobody seemed to have the vision, the courage, the stature, the statesmanship, the leadership, none of that to to make a difference to reverse this downward trend that we're on. And and that's the this truly the serious problem that we You know, the other thing I'd like to get you to comment on, and that is um, Europe. I think that's very important. I know that's a little I I don't think it's out of context in what we're talking about. Not at all. Because one of the things that sure and it's like you, you look at the European leaders and you think to yourselves, I don't know if it's stupid or intent, stupidity or intent or some uh, a combination thereof. It's obvious that within months, their economy is going to tank beyond belief. And the people yeah. in Europe are not going to be in a friendly mood. And there will these governments, I don't see how any of them. Le Pen might win here shortly. I don't see how any of these governments make it through 2022. They're going to have problems. And, you know, we're talking about a slow implosion. But what happens if rather than just inside the U.S., their um, so-called allies, I would just say extensions of the empire, just fall off to pieces, just crack. And the people there are hungry and they just go berserk and their and their and their governments in Europe start falling because an empire has to have the tentacles that reach out. And Europe is a big yeah. one. If Europe falls apart, which it may over this, that's it for the empire. Your thoughts? Well, and, and just quickly before before you respond, George, it's also important to, to remember to, to Garland's point um, the, the Muslim countries did not back the U.S. play. Uh, African countries did not back the U.S. play. Uh, India didn't back. The, China didn't. So the U.S. is is more isolated than mainstream media wants to wants to admit. And Le Pen may win. But can she govern? Go ahead, George. Well, yeah, I. I, I, by the way, you you left out Latin America. Yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. exactly. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. So, so yeah, I think the U the Europe is in a lot worse shape than we are here in the U.S. And they will fall long before the U.S. will topple, except that they are actually a school of neocons. Uh, we I call them neocon poops, but. 
There is actually a school of neocons in Washington that would like to see Europe fall apart because they view Europe, the EU, as a competitor to the to the U.S. in terms of being another pillar in a multipolar world. A lot of people in the U.S. do not want to see any sort of multipolar world. They just want a unipolar world with us on top of the hill. You know, albeit the hill may be, you know, it's maybe an anthill that's collapsing. <laughs> but that, that, that's, that's their view. And, um, and as far as uh, Lapan is concerned, it's going to be really interesting because apparently she stands a real good chance of winning, especially as the French economy goes to tank. And the first thing she will do is to withdraw from NATO, and that will that will be a huge hole in NATO, and that could be the beginning of the end for NATO. And let's face it, NATO is just a proxy warrior for the United States, um, and that will come home to roost. Germany, on the other hand, has been quietly buying Russian gas and oil uh, uh, on the basis of um, on the basis of doing rubles by swapping their e, uh, euros to, uh, to ruble off off the side, not obviously uh, under the U.S. sanction. So all different things are, are happening, despite what Biden and going around the world saying that we are winning. Because we really are not winning, and, and we're going to be paying for it. About a minute and 15 left. House Minority Leader McCarthy said the Russian invasion of Ukraine should serve as a lesson for a possible Chinese invasion of Taiwan, saying that Biden needs to act sooner by beefing up Taiwan's military. Well, you know, uh, McCarthy is is playing the Monday Monday morning quarterback and everything that Biden is, has done or has not done, you can be sure it's going to be on the disapproval list uh, by McCarthy. There's nothing, no way that Biden could do anything that he would agree with. And, um, and, and, and there's nothing more that, that I mean, but even though he probably would agree to prolong the conflict, which is what Biden is doing in Ukraine between the Ukrainians and the Russians. But he would never say that. He's going to do the Monday night, a Monday morning quarterback and, and do the backbiting. Stirring up Taiwan is seen to be a bipartisan interest. Uh, you know, Lindsey Graham was there in Taiwan. And, but, um, and, and that may very well encourage the DPP, the Taipei government, into thinking that, wow, you know the U.S. is we have the they have our back and so on. But boy, yeah, it's it's going to be all over again. Fight to the last Taiwanese if uh, if that comes to a conflict, and that would be second disaster. And I'm not sure how the U.S. is going to be able to handle both, you know, both ends of a firecracker lighting up. George Koo, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. Look forward to having you back. Thank you all. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Responsible Statecraft has a piece entitled, Deadly Pakistan Strikes in Afghanistan Reflect Growing Cross-Border Tensions. The attacks, which killed more than 45 people this weekend, were in retaliation for a spring offensive by the TPP, a Taliban ally. For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a widely acclaimed speaker, writer, journalist, and political analyst, traveled extensively in the Middle East and in Latin America. Uh, He's the author of his latest book is Kamala Harris and the Future of America, an essay in three parts. Caleb Moppin, as always, Caleb, welcome back. Sure. Glad to be here, as always. So Pakistan conducted airstrikes this weekend in Afghanistan's Coast and Kunar provinces in response to the uh, Tariq-e-Taliban Pakistan's the TPP spring offensive inside Pakistan. And uh, the death toll was reported of 45, including women and children. This is some worrisome escalation in cross-border violence. Your thoughts, what's, what's going on here and why now, Caleb Moppin? Well, I mean, this is kind of why I kind of warned people not to celebrate too much when the USA withdrew from Afghanistan, because for the past 20 years since the USA toppled, you know, the Taliban government, uh, Afghanistan has been kind of a strategic epicenter of instability. Uh, the the heroin gangs have have been you know pushing their product over the border into Iran into China and uh, up north into Russia. Uh, the extremist groups in in Afghanistan have you know have kind of escalated their activities in the surrounding region. Uh, the the country didn't get any more stable throughout the 20 years the USA was occupying it. Uh, the poppy fields got bigger. The terrorist groups got bigger. The USA withdrew. The Taliban retook control of the country. But that was after long negotiations between U.S. leaders and the Taliban. And now, you know, we are becoming painfully aware of the fact that this group that that aims to, you know, to expand kind of Wahhabi and Taliban-like, you know, policies and government structures into Pakistan uh, is using Afghanistan as a base area. And that, you know, and that Pakistan is a vital part of the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, the Belt and Road Initiative, um, and it's kind of a, a bastion of development and stability. And that China has invested a lot of money into Pakistan and is has trying to build up Pakistan to be a more developed country um, and to you know to you know provide economic opportunity and kind of be kind of a, uh, a bridge, kind of a link in the long-standing chain to bring development uh, to that whole region. So now we understand that this extremist. Uh, group that is trying to overthrow the government of Pakistan is operating within Afghanistan. And, you know, the, the, the Afghan government seems to be giving them refuge, tolerating them. It's not, you know, directly ordering them to attack. The Taliban is not directly ordering them to attack Pakistan, but uh, it seems to be uh, enabling them to do so. Um, and uh, so now Pakistan is using its military might to, to strike at the group within Afghanistan. And the question is now, how will the Taliban respond to that? Will they consider that, you know, a violation of their sovereignty? And and this is potentially quite dangerous. Now, we know about the, the fact that Imran Khan, uh, who was kind of known as a populist, who was sympathetic to China, was kind of a champion of getting Pakistan and China closer together and a critic of U.S. drone strikes in the country. He's been essentially removed, and it was clear the United States was involved in the efforts to remove Imran Khan. So how things develop from here uh, is, is a serious question. And, yes, if Pakistan and Afghanistan become involved in a conflict, uh, that could have serious consequences for the entire region. Uh, the, uh, the other thing I think, and, and you mentioned it, 
it's conspicuous that within one day after the um, the uh, Pakistanis, um, you know, t- uh, uh, overturned uh, Imran Khan's uh, uh, halt to the um, to the uh, U.S. Uh, coup attempt. When once they overturned that, the very next day those strikes started again, and it appears to me that the U.S. certainly the thing about Pakistan is if you look at it, the um, intelligence community, oddly enough, was very close to the Taliban and helped to create the Taliban, in fact, created the Taliban. But the army there it has, is very, very powerful and is very close to the United States government. It, and now Imran Khan's out bringing literally millions of people into the streets. I think it's very, the coup attempt was very dangerous in that you're looking at potentially destabilizing a nuclear power in the Middle East and Eurasia. Your thoughts, Caleb? Oh, absolutely. And, I mean, it may have been that Imran Khan kind of saw the potential dangers in escalating things on the border with Afghanistan. And even though he obviously didn't like this, this terrorist group out of Afghanistan that was attacking Pakistan, he, he didn't want to escalate things. And he thought, you know, this is a potential, uh, you know, situation where one thing leads to another and then we have instability. Um, and now that he's removed, it seems that uh, the military and the new leadership uh, is OK with this kind of escalation. Um, and, you know, again, you know, we don't know what kind of deals were made with the Taliban in the lead up to the USA withdrawal. I mean, the USA basically just handed over Afghanistan to the Taliban. It wasn't like it was this, this epic defeat or it wasn't Vietnam where, you know, the, the forces of, you know, Saigon fell, et cetera. This was very much the United States was negotiating with the, with the Taliban for a long time, having a lot of conversations about what would happen after they left. And then on a certain date, uh, the USA said, all right, you know, Afghanistan uh, belongs to the Taliban now. Uh, and, and that's what happened. So you have to wonder what kind of arrangements were made and what kind of stipulations the United States made before they handed over Afghanistan to the Taliban. Um, and I think that the way some people portrayed it as this epic defeat for the empire, it wasn't exactly that. Uh, it was almost kind of a controlled release. They figured that the USA was, was going to have to leave at some point, that they wanted to leave in terms that would be geostrategic for the United States. And I think that what we're now seeing indicates that, uh, that, that, that some of these plans were in motion. You know, there are separatist extremist groups that go over the border into Iran. Um, you know, for example, uh, the Jindalah organization uh, that is involved in, in trying to break away historically Sunni regions of Iran. Um, Sunni separatist groups in Iran um, is also involved in the heroin trade. Now, that group operates out of Afghanistan as well. Uh, there are a number of, of drug gangs and terror groups operating out of Afghanistan that are a menace to Russia, to China, and Iran. Um, and those groups seem to be functioning, uh, despite the fact the Taliban is now in power. Let's remember that back when the Taliban was in power before, before the USA intervened uh, in 2002, back when the Taliban was originally in power, they won awards. Uh, the U.N. was hailing them for their efforts to just stop the, the heroin trade. They burned the poppy field. They executed drug dealers in mass. And despite the fact they were a very authoritarian regime and they were, they were you know, widely condemned for their human rights issues, the fact that they curbed the drug trade was one thing the world was kind of praising them for. But that hasn't happened. Uh, the new Taliban, you know, Taliban 2.0, after 20 years of U.S. occupation that's back in power, they don't seem to be doing that. Um, they really don't seem to be doing that. So uh, it's not clear what arrangements were made, but we shall see. 
Switching gears and moving to another country. Riots in Sweden after far-right group burns the Koran. A wave of violent riots with police cars burned and officers injured has hit several cities in Sweden in recent days after authorities gave the go-ahead for a far-right group to carry out demonstrations, during which they plan to burn copies of the Koran, which, of course, is the sacred book of Islam, which is equivalent to the Christian Bible. Uh, this jumped out to us, uh, Caleb, because of also what's going on in France with um, Marie Le Pen and her uh, assurgence in the in the polls. But there's this continuing right wing element within Europe that raises its ugly head and seems to be slowly but surely like a snowball rolling downhill, gaining strength. Yeah, you know, I, I think that, you know, when I when I hear stories like this, I mean, this was, you know, a, a few years ago, I think it was quite some time ago, there was a lot more situations like this, but this is kind of being, being revived again. We have, you know, right-wing provocations that are sparking, you know, anger among the Islamic community of Europe. And, you know, I'll have people say, well, you know, I'm a Christian, and if somebody burns the Bible, I'll think they're a jerk, but I'm not going to go out and burn things. I, I, I hear people saying that. What they don't understand is that the Islamic community of Europe, they're already on the defensive. There's already a feeling that they... They're there taking the jobs from people, et cetera. There's already a feeling that they're unwanted, uh, that they're, they're, they're not loyal. And, and so, you know, you have a, a lot of resentment against them from the domestic population already, uh, a lot of allegations. And then on top of that, these countries tend to have hate crimes laws and, and hate speech laws, where unlike here in the United States, it is illegal to go around using racial epithets. It is illegal to go around denying the Holocaust. So they tend to restrict this kind of thing. So when you have the government in Sweden coming forward and saying so not only uh not only is there this atmosphere that already exists but on top of that uh we are going to go ahead and allow some right-wing person to do something that is blatantly offensive to just kind of just taunt you and 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 insult your religion in this way it provokes a lot of anger and resentment it's about a lot more than just that act um and people people often don't understand that they say well look you know i mean you know uh, they, they don't understand it but but it actually it's, it's a whole situation. It's, you know, they talk about a birdcage has many bars, right, and that, that you can't just isolate. This isn't about one guy doing one offensive thing. It's about the government allowing it when they don't allow other hate speech. It's about an atmosphere where these folks feel like they are pariahs, they're unwelcome, about growing resentment among the population. That's, that's what's leading to this angry response to this provocative, hateful act by the right wing. But what's also leading to this it, not necessarily in Sweden, but you'll find it in France, you'll find it in Britain, is that a lot of these Muslims are immigrants from former colonized countries of the country that they're going to. Sure. And there's a long history there. Um, you know, so it's, it's not simply a matter of someone being nasty. There's a whole history of these populations benefiting from the exploitation of these people in the developing world and, and you know, keeping these countries under colonial slavery. Uh, that's an important point uh, that shouldn't be overlooked as well. Uh, the other thing I think is looking forward, you know, this is another instance of the people getting mad at the victims of their government's policies. The government destabilizes the region and the people from the region come other way place. But there are millions of Ukrainians pouring in and those Ukrainians are going to want jobs and those are Ukrainians that want to get government benefits. Projecting ahead six months, a year from now, the Ukrainians better be looking over their shoulders because I suspect they'll be doing the same thing to them. Um, your thoughts, Caleb? 
Sure. And one thing that, that is interesting is that this is kind of a holdover from the Cold War, right? During the Cold War, the USA would, you know, would, you know, respond to the fact that Cuba has a socialist revolution by welcoming right-wing anti-communist Cubans in the United States. And during the Cold War, you know, there'd be, you know, a revolution in, in China. So the USA would welcome, you know, right-wing anti-communist Chinese folks in the United States. And that seemed to work out well for the United States in a lot of ways, taking in people from countries that have had revolutions, or, et cetera. Um, but what's interesting is that in a lot of these cases, it's, it's, it's the United States is aligning with radical extremists and Wahhabis and some of the most conservative Muslims, some of the most extremist conservative Muslims in Libya or in Syria and, and arming them and supporting them to fight against the anti-imperialist or socialist government. Um, and then part of the way they bribe them and reward them if they, if they are particularly helpful to the United States is they give their families a visa. Well, you know, the most conservative and radical and extreme Islamic folks are quite different than your just typical anti-communist Chinese person or your typical anti-communist Cuban. Uh, they have a very, very conservative lifestyle. They have very, very devout religious practices and beliefs. Um, and so bringing them to, you know, to, you know, uh, the center of a Western country where you've got, you know, half-naked women on billboards and you've got, uh, you know, you've got, you know, music, uh, rock and roll music on the radio and you've got, uh, you know, people at this point are smoking marijuana in, in public. And it can be quite a culture clash. It's not the same thing. It's very different than, than just kind of bringing in anti-communists during the Cold War. There's going to be much more of a cultural clash in doing this. And I think they, that that wasn't really thought through by the geostrategic uh, forces who said, OK, we'll just we'll just bring these folks in as we use them as proxies against regimes we don't like. Kayla Moppin, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis and your flexibility, as always. We look forward to having you back. Thanks, man. Folks, you're listening to. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leanne. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Notes from war-torn Ethiopia. Anne Garrison has a piece. She's writing from Ethiopia, where the war that began in November 2020 continues, with the U.S. backing their former puppet, the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, the TPLF, who ruled Ethiopia with an iron fist from 1991 to 2018, when they were finally overthrown by a popular uprising. What's happening on the ground now? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. Uh, he's the editor and founder of the Guyan Journal, Tedros Fikre. Tedros, as always, welcome back. Hello. Thank you again for having me, Dr. Leon. I'm looking forward to the conversation. We actually talked about this topic when uh, the war initially broke out uh, back on November uh, 4th of uh, you know 2020. So, a lot of it has happened in the in the interim, so I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to the conversation. Well, start there. Just go ahead and tell us uh, where are we on the ground now? Sure. I mean, you know, the uh, the TPLF, as as the the author mentioned, uh, they're they're uh, uh, a very I call them what they are. They're a terrorist organization that have uh, you know made life and living hell for uh, Ethiopians for uh, 27 years. Uh, they, uh, you know, anyone that even spoke about freedom or uh, democracy or uh, human rights or expressed any desire for change, 
was brutally uh, put down. Um, you know, they, they uh, Ethiopia, in terms of, uh, for a few, uh, you know, in terms of the, this, this whole notion of economic development that uh, comes at the cost of the people, uh, it was great for a few, uh, but it was uh, it was a hardship for many. And at the, at the top of that was a government that was intent on enriching multinational uh, corporations and, and, and globalist endeavors at the cost of the people. Uh, you know, this whole idea of, of uh, Ethiopia doing well, it was always be- because corporations went there to set up shop for the least, uh, you know, for, for low, the, the lowest wage. So all that being said, after 27 years of, 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 repressive, of repression uh, and, and stifling the, the will of the people, they, uh, the people finally had enough, and they were uh, booted. And, and so they retreated to uh, northern Ethiopia, uh, Tigray, uh, and then, you know, they, they kind of bid their time and then eventually launched uh, a terror attack on uh, November 4th. Uh, you know, when I came on here last time, I, I noted, you know, imagine if a militia, a, 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 a very powerful militia that started lobbying missiles uh, from, you know, from one part of the country, uh, let, let's say from, you know, Arizona, started uh, attacking California and, or, and Oregon and, and uh, you know, uh, and, and, and Ohio, uh, and, and try to take over the whole country by brute force. And that's what happened. And so uh, that's why when I spoke out uh, vehemently against, uh, uh, you know, well, you know, against the TPLF then, uh, that was under that, that auspices of, of, of the fact that a country has to be governed by laws. It cannot be governed by who has the guns. Uh, and so these things have not uh, subsided. Uh, there's still uh, a conflict going on to this day. Uh, and sadly, what has happened is there's been a very uh, 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 slick uh, and, and a cunning ploy to, uh, to, to turn the TPLF uh, regime into some type of, uh, you know, the good guys in this whole thing, that they're, they're the ones that are being repressed. This is like Pol Pot being painted as some type of, uh, of uh, you know, freedom fighter. And I've never, I've always known mainstream media to present a false narratives. But even by their standards, what's been taking place in Ethiopia has been shocking. Uh, and, and, you know, a lot of this is because the TPLF have, they spent 20, uh, close to 30 years, uh, you know, fostering relationships, uh, the, you know, uh, sending a, a lot of people overseas and, and very, uh, you know, in ways that, that were very strategic. And placing them in, in, in institutions that have uh, the means to uh, to bend public opinion, and they've been doing that. And so, to this day, uh, the, the TPLF is doing what they're doing, and, and the, the war is not ending. And they're still being presented as the freedom fighters and all this. And they they, they never were. They were the freedom deniers. It's funny you mentioned Pol Pot because uh, the U.S. actually supported the Khmer Rouge for years. But, but you know, which, uh, why wouldn't we, you know? Um, but the other thing about it, the, the, uh, the, uh, the, this issue, I think, is it's also a proxy war because it seems to me, let's just say there, my understanding is there are outside powers that, that supporting the Tigray, the TPLF, that it's not, they, you know, in, as far as arms, there was a, an infamous Zoom meeting that apparently was interesting accepted by somebody and was played um, where Western diplomats were talking about how they could basically um, help the bloody and uh, 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 non-democratic Khmer Rouge to take the country again. Your thoughts? Well, I mean, look, it's been this playbook of colonization 
has been the same, uh, just uh, you know, manifested differently in, 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 in different regions based on uh, the, the ethnic, uh, you know, geography of the country. Uh, but it's been pretty much the same, which is to elevate one tribe to, uh, to, to devalue the rest. And then what, what they cunningly do is they, at, at the same time as they're, uh, imp- uh, you know, uh, arming the government uh, and, and, and empower at that time, uh, they would concurrently arm the, 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 the extreme, the, the op- quote-unquote opposition. They call them the, the liberation fronts. Uh, they really are fronts. They're front companies for, for these imperialists. Uh, and so what this does is it guarantees perpetual destabilization. And so we fight amongst ourselves, and the wealth of the nation is being siphoned off overseas. This has happened in, in, in every country throughout Africa, but really it's happening. This is the part that got me. It's happening in America. It's happening everywhere. They pit one against the other. The, the, you know, the, the wealth gap is, is, is going from uh, a gap into a chasm. Um, and meanwhile, uh, the, the wealth of the, of the nation is being uh, siphoned off. So in that way, uh, we, we do a disservice to, uh, to ourselves by falling for these tricks. And so that's sadly what's taking place. You have people that are fighting each other based on our differences, but we have one thing in common. We're all being pillaged. Uh, I don't care if you're in Ethiopia, if you're Tegaru or, or Omo or Amara, um, I don't, in Nigeria, it could be uh, Luau, Igbo. You know, uh, in America, the tribes here are different. It's black and white, left or, or, or right. It's the same thing. And so, you know, to be honest, that, that's why for me, I, I'm actually decided to run for Congress because of this. I, I've noticed that, uh, you know, this, this whole divide and conquer thing, it's take, it, it, it takes on a very veiled form where the pains of the people are actually being leveraged by the very establishment not to address the concerns of the people, but to divide the people, you know? Uh, and so that's what's going on in Ethiopia, too. You, you have people that, you know, that they, they, look, I, I would never sit up here and tell people that their pains are not real uh, or that they, they, uh, they, they haven't felt uh, marginalized. But the problem becomes when you take your feelings of oppression and then, you know, cast that wide net onto people that, other, that likewise have been marginalized throughout their history. So it's victim versus victim uh, while everyone's getting victimized. And that's exactly what's taking place in Ethiopia right now. We have just, uh, we've got about seven minutes, six minutes left. Uh, Two things. One, you mentioned uh, people who spoke out for freedom were violently put down. Talk about the uh, extent to which the TPLF reach extends, because I've noticed in talking to some people here, they're reluctant to speak because of either what can happen to them here or what can happen to their families uh, back in, in, in Ethiopia. And then also, the uh, World Health Organization chief says crisis in Ethiopia and other places deserve as much attention as Ukraine. The world is not treating the human race the same way. Yeah, uh, Dr. Tildros Adnahom talking about crisis in Ethiopia needs attention. It's kind of like, uh, I don't know, uh, Goebbels talking about uh, anti-Semitism. <laughs> he is the main one that was purveying uh, all kinds of horrors. Let's talk about him for, for uh, a second. While he was the, the, the Minister of, 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 of Health in Ethiopia, 
he literally undertook a campaign where he was sterilizing uh, ethnic Amaras, for example, women. Like he was preventing them from, from having babies. He, uh, there was a cholera uh, episode that broke out, and literally he denied it and refused to, to, to address it. This man, I, don't even, I guess you have to be a, uh, uh, someone that, uh, that practices uh, mal, you know, malpractice or criminal negligence in order to be, become the head of, uh, of the World Health Organization. Because this man's only qualification is the fact that he was a, a chief, uh, you know, uh, maligner while he was in, in Ethiopia. Um, and, and, and to your point about, um, you know, what, uh, Amer- you know, Ethiopians feeling uh, reticent about speaking out. Yeah, of course. You know, uh, whether or not, you know, there's the, been the intimidation in America is real. Uh, the, you get phone calls, you get emails and harassment. Uh, and even if you're not afraid of that, then you have, you know, family back home you had to consider. You know, in 2005, the brutalities uh, that the, the TPLF uh, uh, regime uh, uh, committed uh, in, uh, in Ethiopia, just because they, lo- they pretty much lost uh, an election and they, uh, they, they, they rolled their, their, you know, themselves back into power by putting down uh, people that said, wait, we, we want our voices to be heard. Uh, what they did to the uh, Gambala region and, and the, the genocide that they committed against the Anwar people uh, and what they did during the Arishti festival, uh, you know, the, the countless atrocities in Addis Ababa and beyond. Uh, this, the, the, these people have more body count to them uh, than, than most regimes in Africa. I mean, uh, we're, we're not talking about uh, Nelson Mandela here. We're talking about the, the, opposite, the complete opposite of um, so uh, Dr. Tordos Adenholm should be looking in the mirror uh, if he wants to talk about the crisis because he's the, he's the one that was fomenting it for a long time. And even now, instead of uh, being a, a voice for unity and healing, he's talking about the suffering from a very tribal perspective. And that's what his, his TPLF has done. They, they, they uh, foster tribalism and make us forget about our common uh, humanity. And that, this is essentially what ethnic, they call it ethnic Federalism is apartheid. So this is the, the base premise of colonization. You, you, apartheid means apartheid. You, you, uh, you separate people into different neighborhoods and you pit them against each other. So, again, that this is what's going, going on in Ethiopia. And uh, my fellow Americans, we need to, to realize that the same deception is being uh, forced, uh, you know, foisted upon his, here in America as well. Or well, even when you look what he says, he says, uh, people are dying of uh, starvation, and he cited the Tigray region of Ethiopia only. And then later on, when he says, one of the worst, worst siege, sieges in history by both Eritrean and Ethiopian forces. He doesn't mention that the TPLF is doing anything. So even here, he's parroting the, um, you know, the NATO, U.S. empire. Oh, the, we got to get, get there and do something. It almost sounds like he's calling for military intervention against the Ethiopian forces on behalf of the Tigray region. Got about 30 seconds. Yeah, he's essentially asking for outsiders to bomb the hell out of Ethiopia. Now, this is not treasonous. I don't know what is. Uh, here's, how about this? How about we, again, I'm running for Congress on one of these basic premises. We stop meddling in the affairs of other countries, stop arming uh, extremists, and mind our business so that we could actually build up America instead of spending trillions of dollars destabilizing the world. Let us focus on America and rebuild America. And so that's what we're outstanding on this issue as well. Tedros Fikre, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. 
Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Leon and Garland. I appreciate y'all. You too. Folks, you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There is another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Israel police injure Palestinian protesters and journalists on the Temple Mount. Israel police attacked Palestinian protesters and journalists on the Temple Mount, leaving at least 152 injured from riot munitions, according to the Red Crescent. What are the Zionist Israeli forces trying to accomplish? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a broadcaster, journalist, and analyst based in Beirut, Lebanon. He is Laith Marouf. As always, Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So uh, the Zionist Israeli forces began targeting Palestinian protesters at the Al-Aska Mosque on Friday. This is according to the Palestinian Center for Human Rights. The police raid was carried out after Palestinians set up wooden barriers at the site and some firecrackers were thrown. Uh, Give us uh, a little more insight, Laith. This now seems to be an ongoing occurrence uh, at sites such as this, at holy times such as these. Yeah, well, there's a settler organization uh, that uh, put out posters and advertising calling for uh, Jewish white supremacists to uh, bring animals and uh, commit ritual sacrifices at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And they actually put awards for anybody who gets arrested before they do and how much money they will get if they are successful in um, doing the sacrificial, uh, you know, religious sacrifices on, on the site. So, of course, this uh, led to the Palestinian people. This is Ramadan, um, second Friday of the holy month. And of course, Palestinians from uh, 1948 territories from the West Bank, from Jerusalem, uh, gathered at the mosque uh, to protect it. And uh, what the Zionist uh, military forces attempted to do was to clear the mosque of the uh, worshippers to allow these fanatics, these uh, end-of-world Armageddon cultists to come and perform their um, sacrifices. And uh, the Palestinian people didn't allow that to happen, and we see the violence being mitted on the Palestinians for uh, not allowing this uh, desecration of holy sites uh, to happen on their watch. Let me ask you this. I understand that there are organizations or at least one organization in Israel that uh, uh, that advocates for basically the raising of the Al-Aqsa Mosque and for um, replacing it with some type of a you know, Jewish temple or something like that, and that they've and that that organization is in fact um, 
uh, you know, supported by mainstream, if not government um, uh, entities. I've seen and I'm not, you know, I'm not one for rumor, but I've seen that so much and I've read about that so much that it seems as though it, it, that, that there's some su- substance to it. Are you familiar with that? In fact, Garland, I, isn't isn't that same organization, aren't they actually trying to build a theme park? A religious theme park it's there? Something there. But anyway, are you familiar yes. with yeah, are yes. you familiar with that? Yes, yes. And of course, look, if you when you go right now to what they call the Wailing Wall and the entrances to the uh, holy uh, sanctuary where the Aqsa Mosque is, this organization, the Temple Mount uh, whatever organization that uh, is the one responsible on the ground in control of all the activities with the, you know, how they've even put up uh, structures uh, and miniatures and, and posters of what they want to do when they destroy the whole, all the Muslim structures on top of the holy sanctuary to build their, uh, you know, manufactured, uh, fabricated uh, mythology that they can't find any uh, actual um, archaeological record that relates to, by the way. You know, it's now over 100 and somewhat years of uh, Zionist uh, archaeological diggings in Palestine. Until today, they have not found one record of uh, Jewish existence in Palestine prior to the uh, you know second stage of supposed return from Babylon. So uh, when when we, they want to attempt to build this Solomon temple, there is no actual archaeological uh, proof of any Jewish-Israeli uh, state existing at that time or that temple there. So what is their basis of for, for validation? What, what do they turn to as proof that this is their space? See, this is the problem with uh, Zionism, uh, is that it's an invention of uh, and, and, and a rewriting of uh, history. And so it cannot exist with archaeological evidence or historical evidence. And, and therefore, you know, the Palestinians who are in themselves a, you know, evidence that this land belongs to somebody else, has to be erased. And in this situation, the Aqsa Mosque, its own existence just by being there, is a sore uh, stick in the eye of the Zionists, that, uh, and therefore they aim to its erasure um, and, and recreation of our creation of, uh, of uh, fantasy on, on the ground. Um, um, so, yeah, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. You can finish. Yeah, so like right now when we when somebody wants to claim that they are um, Zionist, they're from Europe, they're Jewish, therefore they have a, a right to the land in Palestine, they have to, you know, use eugenics and purity of blood arguments um, to reach that, you know, goal if in their arguments. And that this is the same way when we talk about the facts on the ground of what happened four thousand years ago and attempt to enforce a theocratic uh, you know description of of what happened four thousand years ago on everybody else, even if they don't believe in your religion. 
Um, to move on to a different a different uh, uh, subject, Turkey um, apparently hit Kurdish – well, they call it militant targets. Uh, you know, I don't know what to call it. But Tur- Turkish tar- targets in northern Iraq, apparently they hit um, – they're they're you know uh, having issues with the uh, PKK, the Kurdistan Workers Party, the Syrian Kurdish YPG mila, uh, militia, both regarded as terrorist groups of An- of Ankara. And just to throw this in, the thing the thing I I think is this. Um, I I've always felt as though the Kurds had some level of a valid complaint about a Kurdish homeland because the Brits and everybody came in and rewrote all of the you know rewrote all of the the, the boundaries and a lot of tribes groups and various groups that kind of got a bad deal. However, the Kurds have allied themselves as tools of the U.S. empire in some instances, in, in, in more than one instance. And I think that has invalidated their complaint claims and put them in a bad position because they've allied themselves with the U.S. empire and in many instances become tools for the for the U.S. empire. So it makes you hard. It makes it difficult for me to feel as though I should support Kurds for whatever reason when they're in Syria working with the U.S. empire for the most nefarious of deeds. At any rate, your thoughts on all of that. So the problem, what we see here, obviously, for the Kurdish uh, people is their leadership allying itself constantly with the wrong uh, powers and specifically constantly allying itself with external powers, not to the region. Like the, if the Kurdish people would have worked with the, uh, or the Iranian people and in their quest for a homeland at the time of the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, Maybe they would have achieved their goal, but they aligned themselves with the French and the English in against the peoples of the region, not only against the Turkish uh, Ottomans, but also against the Arabs, against the Assyrians, against the Iranians. Um, and therefore, they put their lot not in the health of the region, and they continue to do so. This is their problem as uh, the leadership of the Kurdish people in Syria, in Iraq, in Turkey, in Iran, most of them are unfortunately still allying themselves with external powers that are not to the region and not finding a way to achieve a better solution for their for their own people that is not at the uh, uh, you know benefit at them um, taking away from anybody who is in the region. Um, that's for the long run. In the current situation in in Iraq, where Turkey has 24, I believe, occupation bases in the north of Iraq um, and has uh, many occupation bases in Syria, not as many, but, but for some reason people don't talk about the Ira- Turkish occupation forces in Iraq, although they're even more uh, bigger numbers, um, um, you know. This is a situation that is only exasperated with the American presence on the ground. And when the Americans are not on the ground and the, a healthy Iraq, a central state that is uh, governed, uh, able to control its territory and its uh, use of force on its land, it can, uh, on the one hand, uh, control the activities of these Kurdish contrasts, and on the, on the other hand, make sure that Turkey cannot occupy 
Iraqi land and continue to loot its resources. It's weird how the relationship between the Kurdish and the Turkish um, power forces, because on the one hand, you have these clashes between them. On the other, all the looted oil of Iraq and Syria that the Kurdish contras loot and uh, smuggle out goes, goes through Turkey, and Turkey benefits from this sale. So it's uh, <laughs> it's a really weird situation. Pakistan's foreign prime minister says conspiracy behind toppling government must be investigated. The people of Pakistan hit the streets in the port city of Karachi to voice their outrage at the ouster of the elected government of Imran Khan. The protesters say the U.S. conspired against their country, while Imran Khan never sought sour ties with any nation during his short-lived premiership. This sounds somewhat like Ukraine, in that the United States in 2014 went in and overthrew the democratically uh, Lukashenko government. And now we have uh, seemingly the United States who have gone into Pakistan and overthrown the democratically elected Imran Khan government. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and this is, remember, Imran Khan came as an outsider to all the political system in Pakistan and took out the two dynastic parties that are, you know, controlled by families and based in ethno, um, you know, compositions and sweep the country, uh, you know, crossing linguistic and ethnic lines and uh, became the prime minister. And since then, he's been attempting to uh, limit the conflicts that Pakistan is involved with and uh, create even, you know, whatever criticism you may have for him, uh, create an environment in Pakistan where the economy can, uh, you know, advance and the population can be lifted. It's a huge population, 200 and somewhat million people out of uh, poverty, you know. Uh, and so to see him being taken out because he continued on this policy of keeping Pakistan outside of any conflicts that uh, could uh, affect this uh, population's health, uh, it tells you a lot. And now to see the millions of people out on the streets, I don't know how much the United States can maintain control of, of Pakistan right now. Uh, we may see an election being called because of the uh, the troubles that are going to be boiling in the streets and uh, the illegitimacy that uh, the current prime minister will be um, dealing with and uh, in, in a future election. And if it comes soon, before the street is calmed down, uh, will lead to a return to Omran Khan to power. You know, I'll throw in another name in, or another country, and that is uh, Iran and Mohammed Mossadegh who in 1953, I think it was, was trying to use the proceeds from oil sales to improve the quality of life for people in his country. Lukashenko was trying to uh, strike some economic trade deals with Russia because his economy was in trouble. He was trying to improve the life for people in his country. Imran Khan gets overthrown, as you just said, because he's trying to improve the quality of life of people in Pakistan. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And this is this is a pattern. And we see that, you know, and it's because 
at the core uh, of the uh, what we call a capitalist system um, that people wrongly think is just about using currency and trade. No, the capitalist system that uh, we see from the colonized angle of the world is the where where the Western economy depends exclusively in its accumulation. The biggest part of its accumulation of wealth comes through the expunging of human capital through genocide and the looting of resources of those lands that have been genocided through colonialism at the lowest cost. So any country in the world that that you know stands in the way of that process of of emptying lands of their people and then extracting their resources at the lowest cost to feed the hunger of the core of the empire uh, are targets and uh, you know Amran Khan is the latest uh, well as always Laith Maruf thank you so much for your time greatly greatly appreciate that we look forward to having you back you have a great evening. You too. Thank you very much. Folks, you are listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. Back and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There is an interesting piece in VenezuelanAnalysis.com entitled, Venezuela's Maduro warns Western powers aim to destroy Russia to stop multipolar world. President Maduro warned that a media dictatorship could lead to a third world war. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a political analyst and editor at Venezuelan Analysis, Ricardo Vaz. As always, Ricardo, welcome back. Hey, great to be back. So Venezuelan President Maduro warned that a multifaceted campaign by Western countries to isolate Russia was aimed at destroying the country in order to deter the development of a multipolar world. Uh, Ricardo, it seems as though President Maduro is is stepping up his rhetoric, stepping up his visibility and uh, particularly as it relates to the world stage. Yeah, and it's particularly relevant since if we recall when, when the U.S. came to Venezuela unexpectedly in early March, one of its demands or requests, because I, the U.S. is in no power to really demand anything, was that Venezuela distance itself or even condemn Russia publicly. And, and instead, Maduro and, and the, the Venezuelan government has had a very coherent position when it comes to, to the Russia-Ukraine Ukraine conflict, which is not just calling for, for the escalation, but also pointing out that the, this conflict did not begin in late February. It began a long time ago. It, we can even go back to NATO expansion after the fall of the Soviet Union. So in that sense, he has used this platform to reach out and, and make sure that people are not overwhelmed and and they can listen to an, an alternative point of view and, and this this point about the, the multipolar world has been very consistent for the Bolivar revolution because the the whole challenge to to 
to develop independently in the U.S.'s hemisphere is precisely challenging U.S. hegemony. And the way to do that in, in the views of, of the Bolivarian process is precisely creating a multipolar world where no imperialist power, in this case the United States, can just freely impose its will on the rest. So, I mean, not just being in Venezuela, but also on a global stage, I think there are, we need more voices like Maduro to challenge this kind of uh, very one-sided narrative when it comes to Russia and Ukraine. You know, I think also the Venezuelans can see this more clearly than others because to me, when I look in throughout the world, when I look at the resistance of, of Iran, of uh, Venezuela, of Cuba, I see countries that stood for a particular principle of independence and that were willing to go through whatever they had to go through and having been to Venezuela and listened to the people and you could see, you know, they had spines of steel and you see that these countries would never break. And I think the Venezuelans, the Cubans, the Iranians more than anyone else can understand the conflict in, um, in Ukraine as a fight for independence for a good portion of the world from U.S. hegemony. Your thoughts? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And I'll actually go further, actually going back to what uh, we were saying in the beginning about the media. These countries that have been so mercilessly targeted, like uh, Venezuela, Cuba, Iran, and so on, they have been kind of vaccinated against believing what the media says without questioning. So in that sense, in Ukraine, we're probably seeing the most blatant propaganda operation, at least that I can that I can remember in in the recent past. And in these countries, because people have been exposed to so many lies and so many uh, so, so so such bias when it comes to their own country, they're not going to just believe what the media says about a different country, just like that. And they'll be they'll have a more critical sense to to look for other sources and try and get a better understanding of the of the whole situation and in fact it doesn't even take long for these uh, double standards to be exposed right we just saw israel committing all sorts of human rights violations against palestinians the last days, and uh, the media treatment is is completely different letter to biden exposes deep crisis of venezuelan opposition the Venezuelan opposition is going through a moment of great division as some sectors of the right-wing opposition have started a public fight against some other sectors that sent a letter to the U.S. president requesting relief from sanctions imposed on Venezuela by the White House. This, So this really, to me, is a, is a significant signal that the, the sanctions are not for as for – as, Impactful as the sanctions have been against the country, they really now seem to be having a bigger impact on the opposition than they have on the president and those who support him. And I've always said sanctions tend to increase levels and senses of nationalism, turning people towards the leader, not against the leader. Yeah, I mean, I, I can uh, I should say that I've also been a bit amused because, you know, the Venezuelan opposition in fighting has been a regular source of entertainment for us here in Venezuela. So what <laughs> happened is that a number of, of uh, high-profile opposition figures, including uh, economist Francisco Rodriguez, Luis Vicente Leon, he's the head of the most pro-opposition polling company here, also 
Ricardo Cusano, he's the former head of a, of a business confederation. So traditional figures who have always been against the government, they wrote a letter, which is reasonable in some regards. It, it says what nobody should doubt at this point, that sanctions are taking a toll and they are hurting the civilian populations. They have not achieved the goal, which was uh, regime change. I mean, in, in their case, they kind of grant that it, the US has this uh, God-given right to interfere in other countries' affairs. But in that sense, they say that uh, it, doesn't, it hasn't worked, it's hurting the people, it's time to, to lift them, which shouldn't be so controversial. They, they even, they even uh, cite polls done by pro-opposition pollsters that find that, I don't know, 70 to 80% of the country rejects sanctions. So it, it, it's even from a policy standpoint, it's not sustainable. Then they go on to propose some things which I, I really don't agree with, which are some kind of internationally supervised mechanisms whereby uh, the oil revenues would not go to the government but to some international body. Hmm. I think this model was tried in, was essayed in, in Iraq and it didn't go well. I think, I mean, uh, the, the fight for sanctions relief has to be from a sovereignty point of view. But anyway, Go ahead. Oh, it's a very interesting story. The president of Mexico, you know, after all of these years of Mexico having very uh, being very compliant in their leadership, being very compliant to the U.S. empire, um, AMLO really cranks into them and points out the con contradictions and the hypocrisy of supporting Juan Guaido, of going after, you know, the greed and the and and the uh, their interest in uh, Venezuela, and then suddenly shifting when they needed um, when they need oil. What do you think about? what the things that um, that the president of Mexico is saying and the importance of the fact that he's the one saying it. Yeah, I mean, the Mexican president, López Obrador, has returned Mexico to its uh, traditional non-interference foreign policy, and he has been steadfast in, in sticking the country to, to that path. And I saw this press conference where he's He's almost mocking Guaido and, and, and mocking the U.S., saying, you know, two years ago, here, there he was in the State of the Union, and you had both parties uh, on their feet cheering him, and now he seems to have been, to have been pushed aside. I mean, to, 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 to be clear, this disagreement that, that he talks about, he says that, you know, the U.S. is shoving Guaido aside so that uh, an oil company, Chevron, in this case, can, can increase its pumping in Venezuela. That, that hasn't happened yet because it has had, there, there has been backlash from the most hawkish uh, sector, especially, especially from Florida. But it's, it's yet another sign of the state of disarray that the opposition finds itself in. To go back to the previous question, uh, he, we had this letter, which as I was arguing, it was very reasonable. And then all of these very hardliners, most of them I, I would imagine are based in Miami, came out of the woodwork saying that, you know, the, the other people who have always been anti-government are secretly Chavistas or denying that sanctions have an impact or even asking that uh, the Biden administration levy more sanctions. So, I mean, it, it really speaks to how incompetent and divided the opposition is. And if I was uh, a, uh, responsible for foreign policy in Washington, I'd be worried because there are elections in about two years and this, this opposition doesn't look like it's in a state that it's going to get its ducks in a row to get a, a serious challenge against Chavismo. So how, you know, now that the United States has imposed sanctions on Russian oil 
and the United States sent a delegation to to Venezuela with hat in hand begging for the government to increase output. How is how is the United States being viewed? I mean, people just must be laughing when when Joe Biden's picture comes on television or when something about him is in the newspaper. People just must be rolling their eyes going, oh, not this guy again. I mean, I think in all honesty, people were already laughing before. There was a, a, a clip from CNN. You remember when, when the media was saying that Trump was the most unpopular president ever at some point in his term? Well, it turns out that Biden manages to be more unpopular than Trump was at the same stage. So, yeah, the Biden administration took this step, and I think from a, uh, from a PR standpoint, it wasn't well well managed and then when they faced the backlash and they just retreated so now they're in a they're in a state of indecision where and you cannot make a significant policy change and hope no one is going to notice so either you you embrace it and you and you and you take the hit or you just don't do it at all i mean biden has just done the worst of both worlds so it, it on one hand it, it it's going to stick to this us exceptionalism matrix and on the other hand it, it has no guiding principle so it's it's just becomes a, a laughing stock you know as you were saying what do you i'm curious uh, your thoughts looking at the um we've got two minutes left so i'll only do one of them looking on what's happening in colombia and the upcoming colombian election i think that's huge of course brazil is such such a gigantic country but colombia is like that's where all the bases are and that's where the cia just operates out of and what are your thoughts about the importance of the colombian election uh, Colombia is particularly significant, particularly significant because it has never had the leftist president, whereas Brazil had this this period under the the workers the workers party. So there's lots of speculation here on whether Gustavo Petro, who's leading the polls, will eventually be allowed to win the elections, or even if he does win, if he'll be allowed to complete his term. So I think we we can expect the entire establishment uh, and the media, of course to do everything to stop him from winning, but he, he's very far ahead in the polls right now. So uh, it, would, it would take something very significant for him not to win. And then, of course, it's a matter of how much he's going to challenge the, the powers that be, right? Because Colombia is uh, not just a, a very militarized state, but a, a state with a very deep paramilitary operation, right? So. So all those interests, if he really is serious about putting the country on a path of, of social justice, he's going to go up against them. And it's, it's not going to be easy, but it, it would be very significant, of course. Then there's all the obstacles of, of U.S. influence because Colombia is, in a way, the, the Israeli equivalent in, in Latin America. So, yeah, lots, lots of expectations for Colombia. Ricardo Vaz, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. And we look forward to having you back. It's my pleasure. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There's an interesting piece in Strategic Culture. Ukraine conflict marks end of era dominated by Western power. The old U.S.-led order has to go, and it will go precisely because it is no longer sustainable as far as the rest of humanity is concerned. For further insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a writer at the Polemicist.net and Counterpunch. He's the author of The Battle of Ukraine and the War It's Part Of, Jim Cavanaugh. As always, Jim, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So the piece, Strategic Culture, continues. The ongoing military conflict in Ukraine is a watershed event of immense historical significance. It marks a break from the past and the beginning of a new geopolitical reality, one that will encompass progress in international relations towards greater economic development, justice, and peace. Your thoughts, Jim Cavanaugh. Well, yeah, this is the premise of the article that I wrote, the, the war that this battle is a part of. In other words, if one considers this, what's happening in Ukraine now, a war that started on February 24th, then, you know, you have a certain framework in which there are certain kind of thoughts are excluded. But this is really a, a battle in a war that's been going on since the demise of the Soviet Union and which Ukraine was recruited into as a battleground in 2014 over the fate of the world and whether the future is going to be dominated by the United States in a unipolar way, as it has been for the past 30 years, uh, or whether it's going to change into a system which, uh, in which rising nations like Russia and China and other countries, Venezuela, can make their own way without being dominated and and controlled by the United States and punished by the United States for whatever transgressions the United States imagines they have done. So this is what this fight is about, and it's why it's so dangerous. You know, there is not really a, a, a conflict between Russia and Ukraine. The, the conflict is between Russia and the controller of Ukraine, which is the United States, which has been controlling Ukraine since 2014, and it's over that state of the world. And neither side in this is going to want to admit defeat in this, because one or another side will be defeated. Either the Russians will have to swing back home and be under the hegemony of the United States for decades more, or the United States will see what it did in Ukraine, which was to capture it and put it into this uh, as, as, a, as a weapon in this contest for uh, hegemony. And the United States will lose that and will be start retreating in a very decisive way from this unipolar hegemony that will be clear and will be irreversible. So everybody's going to fight about that. And it's a very difficult thing to, you know, and, and as, the, as this article says, we don't know what's on the other side of this. But in fact, this unipolar dominance of the United States is really already over because it's demonstrated its instability and its hypocrisy and its arrogance and its inability to deal fair, fairly with people, even with the wealthy and, uh, uh, you know, favored people of the world. So let me t take a little – I'm with you on all this. Take a little bit of a different angle, not much of a different angle, and that is I think – and I agree, agree with the article. This marks the end of it. Now, one could argue that when the Russians you know, blocked them in Syria or maybe when the Bolivians were able to take their country back. So over the past four or five years, there's been a number of things that have bit by bit marked the end of the U.S.-dominated era. But this is the punctuation mark on it. And let me go one, one, one step further. And to me, it's not Ukraine will indicate what's going on. But here's where I think it happens. 
in Europe because uh, often, uh, more often than not, an empire collapses from the inside out rather than outside in, right? It implodes of its own weight. So what's going to happen? Because the the United States have dragged these idiot European leaders into economic suicide, the people in Europe are not going to be happy and explode. And I think, first of all, if Le Pen wins here in a few days— Bingo. But I think what we're looking at is focus on Europe and how the people of Europe over the next month, it's a month, et cetera, react to the pain that the United States and their idiot leaders, compliant leaders have put on them. That's going to be huge. Your thoughts, Jim? Sure. I mean, that's that is the key element of this. The United States key ally is Europe taken as uh, the European Union and the European countries taken as a whole. They are the key allies of the United States at this point. And what the United States is doing is going to undermine that. As you say, politically and socially and economically, they're going to pay the price for this. And if there's any military conflict, Europe's going to be the first and most burned. <laughs> and they will be burned. And, and so you have this situation where it's kind of obvious to everybody that the United States is dictating economic and social po- economic policies that are to the detriment of European countries and the European population. And for, don't forget what this is for. This is for the, the, uh, the right of NATO to expand infinitely. Nobody really has a terrible attachment to that idea. Uh, so, you know, because really that's the United States. You know, and don't forget... In the European 2014, there was a little distinction between EU and NATO. And precisely, Victoria, Victoria Nuland had to say, screw, NATO, screw the EU, <laughs> right? We're going to do what we want. Now, the EU has turned its, has demonstrated and become what's nothing more than a, figure, a political figurehead for NATO military expansion. And it's going to have devastating effects in, uh, on Europe, European population. And who don't want it, who haven't asked for it, large segments of which are opposed to NATO from the beginning. Uh, even the French government, you know, under the Gaulle, and stayed out of the NATO military uh, command. So this is going to all come back and haunt Europe, as you say. And that is the, 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 one of the places in which, no matter what their rhetoric is now, everybody wants to join NATO, Finland and Sweden. I'm giving, almost guarantee you they're not going to join NATO. But, you know, this is really a desperate rhetorical unity which is underneath which are these forces that are destabilizing and disintegrating the actual uh, unity of uh, working against the alliance, the the economic and military alliance with the United States. Not only is this about NATO, it's also about controlling the energy markets. The United States wants in on the European energy market that Russia has been controlling for the years that, that it has. Speak to that, but also let me add one more thing. Uh, when you when you were just just uh, just talking, and you said that the Ukraine that this really isn't about Ukraine. This is that Ukraine is really be the vessel that is being used for this larger battle. That made me think about context, and one of the things that has been just totally void in the U.S. mainstream media discussion about this has been context. The United States overthrew 
the democratically elected government in Ukraine in 2014. Uh, there are Nazis in Ukraine, and they hold very powerful positions in the country, in the military. These are just examples of the lack of context in the United States narrative. Yeah, well, you know, Aaron Mata did a great article about this, you know, and the fact is that Zelensky ran his campaign as a peacemaker who was going to make peace with the Russians. He was immediately threatened by the Ukrainian fascists, literally told they would hang him on a tree. And in fact, you know, the, the, the fact that he's being that he's controlled and he has no independent agency is kind of obvious to everybody at this point. He will not be allowed to make a deal with the Russians that is not approved by the United States and the Ukrainian fascists. And what happened is the United States aligned itself with the adamantly Russian, anti-Russian Ukrainian fascists to, to, to prevent Zelensky from moving, to, from stopping the, 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 the aggression against the Donbass and from moving and to prevent him from actually implementing the accords that they had reached, the Minsk Accords. Don't forget, Russia is acting now because the negotiations that were successful three times were ignored and uh, denigrated and abandoned, essentially, by Ukraine. And Zelensky was recruited eventually, with the help of the United States, to the side of the Ukrainian fascists, where he said, we're going to take back Crimea, we're going to take back the Donbass. They prepared a, an offensive against, against the Donbass. So, you know, the, 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 the third space between the Ukrainian fascists and between aggression against Russia and some kind of peaceful agreement... They already, they already tried that space. It didn't work. That's why Russia is doing what it's doing now. Unless you understand all this, as you say, unless you understand the context, the historical context, both the long-term historical context, that these fascist groups in Ukraine are fascist groups, Nazi groups that literally fought with Hitler and still are proud of that fact in World War II, and that in the, over the past eight years, they're the, they're the groups that have been you know, adamant about not making peace and being aggressively anti-seeking war with Russia. Um, Caitlin Johnstone has an interesting piece. U.S. suddenly pretends to care about rights abuses 